1: Hey everybody, welcome to Trashy Divorces, where we are closing out our fifteenth season. Can you believe it, Stacy? Hardly. <laughs> hey friends, I'm Alicia. As mentioned, Stacy. <laughs> I'm Stacy.
2: We revealed that. Holy cats, today y'all. We're going out with a true Hall of Famer, Jennifer O'Neill. Love has been a little bit hard on her. Mm-hmm. Jennifer O'Neill, model, actress. Nine marriages, eight men. Definite all-star. Definite all-star Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. Love really has been hard on her. Before we start our episode, got a magic mirror here. I want to give some huge shout-outs and thanks to our newest supporters. Get an ad-free episodes and bonus episodes over at patreon.com slash trashydivorces.
1: Thanks so much for joining us, Jan C., Jennifer B., Corey C., Karen C. They're all related. Allison M., <laughs> Sherry M, Jennifer P, Jackie B, Paige G, and Olivia N. I got a few extra big shout-outs to give this week in the Magic
2: Mirror. We got a few names. My mama had her birthday. I took her out for a big night at City Winery mm-hmm. to see one of our very favorite songwriters, Mac McNally. I'm gonna give some extra big shout-outs to our fellow table mates, Ellis and Michael. You two were delightful. I want to give some extra big shout-outs to the fantastic staff at City Winery. Drew and Charles, you, too, are amazing. Thank you for making it a great night for all involved. Shouting out from the rooftops. Y'all all all rock. Thank you for that. Thanks, our new Patreon folks. Alicia, if we're going to close
1: this season out in style, what, what should we do now?
2: Yeah, love doesn't get any easier on us until we go, go, go.
1: All right, Alicia, we are closing out our season with someone who has been surviving herself for quite a long time.
2: Big time Hall of Famer here, Jennifer O'Neill. Holy cat, y'all. Jennifer O'Neill left her mark on Hollywood and on many of the men in this country when she starred in Summer of 42 as the 22-year-old older woman who seduces a 15-year-old boy. Yikes. (laughs) Now, the plot of this film is something that may sound more like a felony than mm-hmm. a romance by today's standards. Doubtful but it would get made today, but go ahead. At the time of its release in 1971, Summer of 42 was an enormous hit. This film grosses over $32 million the year that it comes out. Wow. Which makes it one of the most successful films of 1971. Add to that its video rentals and sales figures- come in at an extra $20 million, adding to the movie's overall gross. It was nominated for multiple Academy Awards and Golden Globes, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Music Score, (laughs) and Best Cinematography. Today, it is still considered one of the greatest coming-of-age films ever made. Jennifer O'Neill jokes that for years after the film, women would just come on up to her and say their husband was in love with her. (laughs) But for the last few decades, instead, women have gone up to Jennifer Neal and said, my husband is in love with you, and now so is my son.
1: Oh, God.
2: So apparently, Summer of 42 has become quite the generational experience for men.
1: Yes, I can imagine a lot of teenage boys are like, that would be awesome. So.
2: All in all, Jennifer Neal has appeared in over 35 feature films and countless other television shows and movies, In addition to her acting success, O'Neal was also the face and spokesperson of CoverGirl Cosmetics for over 30 years. That may be where her face is more familiar. Mm -hmm. Being a CoverGirl spokeslady. Jennifer O'Neal, in fact, is in the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History for one of the longest-running modeling contracts in history. Although Jennifer O'Neal's life may have looked perfect on the outside... It has not been an easy one.
1: Which is what we like.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's straight up trashy. Like, 100% right here. Despite Jennifer's beauty and her career success, she has struggled to find peace and happiness in her personal life. Jennifer has had nine marriages to eight different men. Suffered as well from debilitating depression, attempted suicides, and many other struggles along the way. Mom, Let's get into it. Okay. Jennifer O'Neill was born on February the 20th, 1948, in Rio de Janeiro. Hmm. This is in Brazil. When she's only a year old, though, her family packs it on up out of Rio and moves to Connecticut, which I can imagine is very different.
1: Yeah. Although, as a baby, she probably didn't experience much culture shock. So. Well, Jennifer's a shy and insecure
2: child. She loves the country life. She really, really loves animals. And she is a horse girl. She desperately wants a horse. She doesn't have a horse, but she knows inside her heart that she is a horse girl. In Connecticut, she'll never get that horse. But Jennifer will have a dog that she loves dearly. Does she name it Horse? I don't think so. Okay. Sadly, Jennifer is really devastated. When she's 14 years old, her parents tell her that the family is packing up from Connecticut and moving to Manhattan. And because of the move, Jennifer's going to have to get rid of her beloved dog. I don't know why the dog isn't included to come with the family to Manhattan. But Jennifer, being that the dog is beloved, is tremendously upset. Sure. A lot of 14-year-olds recognizes that her 14-year-old age, upon retrospect, right, had a lot to do with it. And has said that what looks like a bump in the road for an adult might appear catastrophic to a teenager. Sure. Right. What happened next was, in fact, catastrophic. Despite not wanting to leave the home that she loved, and the dog, <laughs> and feeling like she would hate moving to the city, Jennifer attempts suicide by taking her mother's sleeping pills. Oh, yikes. She'll describe her intense feeling about not being heard. And says now that her suicide attempt was a way to rebel against her parents' decision to move to Manhattan. Wow. When she talks about that situation now, Jennifer O'Neill says she didn't want to die. She just wanted to be noticed. The 14-year-old Jennifer was in a coma for two weeks. Good Lord. When she wakes up, her parents will call her suicide attempt a stunt, quote unquote, Mm. and make it clear to her that. Any kind of this nonsense just simply doesn't work for them and their lives. Wow. Jennifer later saying, Nothing was ever recognized, understood, grieved, or healed afterward. The family just went on with their plans to move to Manhattan and nobody discussed it anymore. Just kind of unhealthy. Yeah. After moving to Manhattan, Jennifer will attend the very prestigious Dalton School on the Upper East Side The Dalton School does have quite an impressive list of alumni. It does indeed. Including Montgomery Clift, Carol Marcus, otherwise known as Carol Marcus, Soroyan Soroyan Mathow, my Mm -hmm, favorite, favorite. made of of moonbeams. Uh, Anderson Cooper, Claire Danes, Jennifer Gray, Mary Stewart Masterson. Dalton School, kind of a big deal. Matt Iglesias. Ah, there you go. Mm -hmm. Someone at the Dalton School suggested that Jennifer go see Eileen Ford about modeling. And Jennifer's not really interested in becoming a model, but she is interested in earning enough money <laughs> to get back to Connecticut. No, to buy herself a horse. Oh, she really? She's a horse girl. Okay, she's a horse girl without a horse, and she really wants one back. Thinking
1: bad. she was going to go rescue her dog.
2: So, in order to get the horse seed money, <laughs> Jennifer packs up, goes to see Eileen Ford, where Jennifer is signed immediately. She's told to lose ten pounds, which she promptly does, and. By the time that Jennifer O'Neill is 15, she had appeared in Vogue magazine wow. and was traveling around Europe modeling. Also, she got her horse
1: <laughs> on horseback. Now, as much as
2: Jennifer did adore her horse once she finally got it, it was riding that almost killed her when <laughs> she was only 15. While riding, Jennifer was thrown off her horse and the horse landed on her. Oh, no. Her accident was very similar to that of Christopher Reeves' accident. The fall results in Jennifer breaking her back and her neck in three places. Yikes. Thankfully, Jennifer recovers and does return to modeling, but her modeling career quickly transitions into acting. But modeling would be the mainstay in her life for many years to come.
1: Hence the long cover girl contract. Okay. Okay. She's got her horse. Traumatic childhood. I mean, what more do you need? Let's make it worse and talk about the first marriage. Go rebuy your parents' house in Connecticut. Get your dog. Let me introduce you to Deed Rossiter.
2: Deed. Jennifer had been dating Deed Rossiter, who was six years older than she, for over a year, and Jennifer was certain she was in love. Jennifer desperately longs for the security and the support of a family.
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, it sounds like her own parents weren't... Perhaps as nurturing as they could have been?
2: No, not at all. They they really weren't. So, naturally, when you're 17, in order to attain that sense of family belonging, mm. naturally, you get married. At the tender age of 17 years old, Jennifer will marry for the first time in the same little church she used to attend when she was a kid in Connecticut. Hey! Yeah! <laughs> she wrote wholeheartedly. Dog in a tux. <laughs> Jennifer wrote that she wholeheartedly believed they'd be together forever, but truly had no understanding of the vows she was taking. Sure. I was 17 and I was a silly little girl, she Mm -hmm. says. She constantly questions herself and her worth and allows her new husband to make most or all of the decisions. Jennifer says, Despite the fame I was gaining, I remained intimidated most of the time and under Deed's spell, I became a walking paradox, a major star- Minor confidence heading straight for some of her biggest nightmares. Mm. Major star, minor confidence. Jennifer was making more and more money and the discrepancy in her earning ability. In the earning abilities between both partners had always bothered her husband, Deed. The financial disparity is not the only problem that her career is creating because Jennifer's traveling a lot. And when she begins acting, she's working with very attractive actors. Sure. Indeed, will in fact become jealous and possessive, which is a
1: great combo. Sure. Especially if he's already feeling inadequate because of her earning Like, great. Totally toxic. So despite the problems in her marriage, Jennifer has a great idea. Let's have a baby. That's
2: exactly right. She's on a mission to have a child. So at the very tender age of 18 years old, Jennifer O'Neill is a pregnant newlywed in a volatile marriage. Oh, God. At 19, Jennifer gives birth to her first child, a daughter they name Amy. After having Amy, things quickly spiral out of control. The relationship between Deed and Jennifer got worse when he was critical of her and began withholding affection from her often. Adding to that, Jennifer will suffer from extreme postpartum depression, which was made far worse by the fact that no one recognized postpartum depression At the then. the time, yeah. Soon again, Jennifer is contemplating suicide, but realizes she doesn't want to die. She just needs help. Jennifer will confide in her husband, who is not at all helpful. Jesus. He wa- he withdraws even further as a result. Jennifer will decide to check herself into a hospital for treatment. Good. And eventually was successful. She'll continue modeling and acting during this time. This is kind of delightful. I love to find my Robert Evans uh, spiderwebs. Here's a here's a good Bob Evans. Jennifer will have several meetings during this time with Robert Evans, head of Paramount, in mm-hmm. attempts to cast her in a movie with the studio. Robert Evans is consistently frustrated though. Jennifer O'Neill isn't real easy to cast because Jennifer refuses to appear in any state of nudity, <coughs> refuses to swear on screen. Hmm. Also refuses to move to Hollywood, even during the period of filming, which makes things a little bit problematic.
1: Yeah. Can we shoot this in Connecticut?
2: <laughs> I got a dog and a horse there.
1: <laughs> Jennifer
2: O'Neill and Robert Evans discussed her actually playing Ally McGraw's role in Love Story. Mm-hmm. But the studio executives refused that because they said Jennifer O'Neill could not play a Jewish girl. Soon after that meeting, she has a meeting with the legendary director, Howard Hawks. He wants to talk with her about starring in the next John Wayne film. This is called Rio Lobo. Howard Hawks is kind of a fascinating character, but this story is terrible. (laughs) After talking for a few minutes, Howard Hawks does give her the part. And then he told her to approach him where he sat behind his enormous desk tentatively jennifer does as howard hawks asks her to do and when she finally makes it to his side he lifts his arm and punches her hard in the stomach jennifer gags and staggers away from him a little and howard hawks booms that's where i want you to speak from from the diaphragm not your throat you are special know it not only in the way you look but how you sound you will be a hawks girl I've made them all, including Lauren Bacall, and I will make you a star.
1: Was the punch necessary for that? I guess if you don't know where your diaphragm is. Does he know where the... Di- anyway. He's gonna...
2: She's gonna be a Howard Hawks girl. Yeah. He's made them all. Jennifer said that working with John Wayne, though, was a delight. That's good. Rio Lobo was released in 1970 and would be Howard Hawks' last film. Punchy. jennifer's next film would be the one that she's most remembered for summer of 42 released the following year in 1971 1971 is also a big
1: year because that's the year that she indeed divorced Mm. woohoo yeah good good call there so one down eight to go is that what we're we're getting there we got we got a few installments in between though
2: Let's talk about a mystery engagement and an unwanted abortion. Mm. Jennifer O'Neill, by this point, had already been through a lot in her young age. But what was about to happen to her is something that she claims impacted her the most in her life. Jennifer will meet a man that she calls extremely wealthy and powerful who treated her like a princess. This man is unknown. She never names him, but some high flyer. Jennifer falls deeply in love with him. But soon, she said, it led to disillusionment because, quote, she discovered some truths behind the guarded doors of politics and big business that are perhaps better left hidden, unquote. Hmm. A pattern that would soon become a constant in her life started to appear. Jennifer felt rejected and as a result became difficult, quote unquote. She would lash out and cry in order to be heard. She would be obnoxious, and then he was distant. And again, despite the difficulties in the relationship, when Mystery Man proposed to her in 1973, she is currently at the time filming Lady Ice with Donald Sutherland and Robert Duvall. But when the proposal comes, Jennifer accepts. Briefly, the relationship improved because Jennifer feels wanted and loved and hopeful. And then Jennifer discovers that she is pregnant. She's thrilled. Assumes that her fiancé would be thrilled as well. But fiancé was... No, not at all. She leaves the doctor's appointment. She goes straight to his office to share the good news. And when she tells him, he looks at Jennifer and says, I don't want it. And things begin to spiral and become very dark at this point. Yikes. Initially, Jennifer refused to have an abortion like he wanted her to have. And she's like, fine, man, I'll just have the baby on my own. This is how she described what happened next. He shed layers of his personality like a human onion, leaving less and less compassion as he searched for the right method to coerce me into doing what he wished. Like a human onion. How gross is that? For a while, Jennifer will still hold firm, but finally... Mystery fiance will tell Jennifer, I'm going to do everything in my power to have you get rid of this pregnancy. But if you insist on having my baby, I promise you from the moment it is born, I will take it away from you and you will never have anything to do with it ever. Whoa. I give you my word that I will prove you unfit, emotionally unstable, and I will bury you. Do you understand me?
1: Oh, my God. Mm,
2: Human onion. Human garbage. Jennifer is frightened and knows that, in fact, mystery fiancé does have Mm. the actual power to follow through with those threats. Jennifer will end up having the abortion and it haunts her for years. Jennifer feels that her multiple subsequent miscarriages throughout her life were punishment for ending Mm. this pregnancy. She said the impact that this decision had on her life caused her tremendous pain and suffering due to feelings of guilt and weakness that would then result in self-loathing and depression.
1: Now, oh, that's awful. It's terrible. I mean, this
2: <sighs> Jennifer yeah. O'Neill, rocky, rocky ride. It's probably a great time to take a break. We're going to come back with more marriages after the flip.
1: Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on
0: iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, you talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous.
1: All right, Alicia. So that did not result in marriage, I guess. But there is a marriage number two. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Yes. Get
1: to marriage number two. This time to
2: Joseph Koster. Jennifer had met a man she described as the most sensitive, supportive individual I have ever known. His name was Joseph, and the two had met studying Eastern philosophy. Joseph was aware of the torment that Jennifer was going through regarding the abortion that she was being pressured to have. And Joseph offers to marry her and raise the baby as his own. Oh, wow. Jennifer believed this to be impossible because of the Mm -hmm. child's real father's position in the world. But Jennifer realized that she still could marry Joseph regardless, and she did. The couple will marry in 1972. They buy a home with 30 acres in Bedford, New York. It seems now that her debilitating depression was becoming a distant memory, but it doesn't take too long before many of the traits that initially attracted Jennifer to Joseph started becoming a problem. His calm spiritually into nature That was so appealing to Jennifer when Mm -hmm. they first met and married. Those traits become a little problematic. Cause of the trouble once they're in Bedford. Jennifer will describe Joseph as meditating five to six hours a day. Oh, yikes. In his search for enlightenment. So after Joseph spends five to six hours a day meditating for enlightenment, then he'd go lock himself in his office and write for the rest of the day. Meaning... Joseph is completely isolating himself away from Jennifer and their children. She has a daughter. He has a son. Joseph also becomes a super fun involved with a group of friends that Jennifer considers to be very radical. They talk about a lot of topics that raise concerns for Jennifer, such as the value of drinking one's own urine. to cleanse the body. One of those. Gotcha. Joseph also stops having sex with Jennifer. So, based on Jennifer's low self-esteem and insecurity issues, naturally she assumes that all
1: of this is her fault, leaving Jennifer once again feeling rejected and hurt. Can I postulate, though, that if the man is drinking his own urine, perhaps the lack of sex is okay? I'm
2: probably gonna, not gonna hurt you. <laughs> Joseph and Jennifer had been together one year when she decided to tell him that she missed him and was unhappy with how they were living and would like to spend more time with him. Mm-hmm. And Joseph doesn't yell or argue. Joseph simply just goes and packs a little suitcase and a taxi shows up in a few hours that same day and Joseph leaves with his son and Jennifer O'Neill never sees him again. Oh my God. Often meditate someplace else, huh? The end of their marriage was abrupt, and the divorce was finished quickly. When it was over, Jennifer is left feeling like a failure once again. After her second divorce, Jennifer writes that she had a string of engagements, which thankfully got nipped in the bud before blooming into yet more disappointments. One of those engagements was in 1974 to previous Trashy Divorces alum star, Elliot Gould. Mm. It's a little remarkable to think about how many times Jennifer O'Neill... Probably got proposed to. Whoa. All right. On to marriage number three. This is Nick Denoya. In 1975, Jennifer signs on to do an act in a nightclub that would open a hotel in Puerto Rico. Jennifer's agency finds a director for her show who had a lot of experience with putting on that kind of dazzling, spectacular show. His name was Nick DeNoia. And Nick DiNoya was well known in the business for being a director, screenwriter, and choreographer. Nick was the choreographer at the time for Chippendales Hmm. and had won two Emmy Awards for his work on Unicorn Tales, which were television specials on NBC. Okay. Once they arrive at the hotel in Puerto Rico, with only a few weeks to rehearse, Nick worked Jennifer hard getting ready for this two-hour, one-woman, song-and-dance spectacular. Jennifer said she'd never met anyone like Nick and was deeply impressed with his vision, precision, and energy.
1: See what happens when you don't punch somebody in the stomach?
2: (laughs) Jennifer feels encouraged by him because Nick is so supportive of her as a performer, saying not only did he want me to succeed, he expected me to be nothing less than brilliant, She feels very appreciated at this point, and the intense experience of this draws the two very close together in a short amount of time. Jennifer writes that the experience left us emotionally raw and involved with each other on a personal level. The couple will marry within a few months of meeting. Ironically, Jennifer goes ahead with the marriage even though Nick confesses to her shortly before the wedding that he is gay. Jennifer really appreciates his honesty. I mean, yeah. Thanks for telling me, ma'am, but the wedding plans are already made and I don't feel like I can change them. So, zoinks.
1: Well, clearly this one is gonna be extremely successful for all involved.
2: Apparently, Jennifer does feel that she could change him. Mm. Jennifer says she made it clear to Nick that it was a must, quote unquote, that his gay life was a thing of the past and could absolutely not continue once They had gotten married.
1: Jennifer, I mean...
2: As you can imagine, mm -hmm. for this and many other reasons, the marriage will last less than a year. Additional side spiderweb note here. In 1987, Nick DeNoya was murdered while he was in his Manhattan office. This is a huge scandal that is known in the world as the Chippendale murder. Okay. When Nick DeNoya took the credit for the New York Chippendales nightclub... Steve Banerjee, who was the original owner and founder over in California, like Steve and Nick have this very volatile relationship. And Steve doesn't like that Nick took advantage of Steve's bad contract writing. This Mm. case is actually very fascinating. But Steve goes ahead and hires someone to kill Nick DeNoia. Steve Banerjee will end up Hanging himself while awaiting his sentencing. The Chippendales murder is pretty legendary in the late 80s. Yeah, I've heard of it. Wow. We're not a true crime podcast, but there's the association in... No, like
1: just lots and lots of tragedy in Jennifer O'Neill's life already. We're on to marriage number four. Okay. This time is Jeff Barry.
2: Two years after divorcing Nick, Jennifer will meet Jeff Barry through a mutual friend. Now, Jeff Barry is a gifted songwriter. And very romantic. You might not know his name, but you sure do know his hits. He co writes songs like Do Wah Diddy Diddy Da Do Ron Ron. Sure. And then he kissed me. Be my baby. Chapel of Love. River Deep Mountain High. Yeah, Jeff Berry, pretty prolific songwriter. Successful
1: songwriter, okay.
2: When Jennifer and Jeff meet, Jeff is on the rebound from a relationship with a well-known actress of the time, and Jennifer's also on the rebound from the relationship she was in right after her divorce from Nick DeNoia. Jeff and Jennifer relate to each other, commiserating the end of both of those previous relationships, which was creating the perfect storm for them to fall into each other's arms for comfort. Jeff has two kids close to Jennifer's daughter's age, so that worked out okay. Jeff was also somewhat hasty in the love department and having a few previous divorces under his belt as well, so what on earth could go wrong? Sure. In 1978, Jennifer O'Neill marries for the fourth time to Jeff Barry, and you might have a feeling where this one's going. It turns out they rushed into the marriage before they knew each other really Mm -hmm. well. Well... Plus, they had the stress of living on different coasts, which caused them not to see each other very often. And sure enough, it's not long before this marriage was also over. The couple will divorce amicably in 1978. Holy cats, what have we got? Four
1: husbands, seven years. Pretty fast. That's very, very fast. Did All they right. marry in 78? So yeah. Did they divorce the same year? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Just... Hall of Famer. Rush into divorce court. You ready for number five?
2: May as well. Good Lord, John Letterer is number five. A few years earlier, a man named John Letterer had come into Jennifer's life as the boyfriend of her daughter's nanny. John and Jennifer do become friends, but the relationship intensifies after Jennifer is in a car accident. (laughs) No, uh, like,
1: a horse falls on her.
2: incredible. Jennifer's recovering in the hospital. John swoops in and started taking care of her affairs and insisted that Jennifer just focus on resting and recovering. Jennifer will write, John was a con artist to the bone. Oh my God. Clear to the marrow, but I wasn't to know that for many years. He had an uncanny knack for intuiting what someone needed and then supplying it before they even thought of asking. It's very difficult to get your arms around reality, When your partner lies more easily and plausibly than he tells the truth. I'm sure. But of course, for our girl Jenny, she doesn't know any of that until it's too late. So she follows hook, line, and sinker for old John. It's also a natural fit for Amy since she and John were already friends Amy's the daughter. Correct. And John will promise Jennifer that they could have a child together too, which is something he desperately wanted as well. And in 1979, Jennifer O'Neill will marry John Letterer at the age of 31 years old, marriage number five. A few problems here. It gets sticky. It gets real, real bad. One problem already lurking beneath the surface was that John was taking the painkillers that Jennifer had been prescribed from her car accident, Mm -hmm. which she had stopped taking after coming home. But she had the pills and the pills had refills. Oh, wow. So John begins using them for his alleged headaches. John also begins following Jennifer around on film sets and was learning the biz. Oh, no. John starts to manage Jennifer, which will be, uh, right? You're just shaking your head. No, this is just, it's mm going to get worse. He starts to manage her. We see how this goes. Oftentimes around this place, it's a huge mistake. And Jennifer knows that John is considered to be a joke in the industry, but she wants to make her marriage work. And she knows that he wants a career in the biz and, Jennifer was going to get the baby that she really wanted, and Amy's now a young teenager, and Jennifer's working a lot and pregnant. John is increasingly spending more time with her, and in August of 1980, Jennifer gives birth to a son they named Reese, and for a short time, things improve. Until. Until. Da, da, da. Jennifer starts to become disturbed, watching how close her husband John and her daughter Amy had become. She even imagined some of Amy's behavior was what she considered to be flirtatious with her stepfather, which is very curious to Jennifer. Jennifer talks to her husband about this and John says that Jennifer's just jealous of the close relationship that I have with your daughter and you're just being silly. Add to this another ongoing issue was that John was interested in guns and kept them in the house, which also terrified his wife. Without going too far into the sad and horrible details of what is coming, it is soon revealed that Jennifer's suspicions about John and Amy were true, and John had been sexually abusing her daughter. Amy goes to live with her dad, and Jennifer tries to figure out how to clean up the mess that is her life. In October 1982, Jennifer goes up to her room to take a little nap, and there sees John's gun in a bowl filled with bullets.
1: That's not safe storage.
2: No, at this point, Jennifer and John are in the middle of a court case uh, regarding all of it. And John had not moved all of his stuff out yet. And Jennifer's angry because the gun is loaded in reach of their young son. Mm. Jennifer calls John and tells him to get the gun out of the house immediately. She picks up the bowl containing the gun and jumped on her bed sideways as she always did because it was a tall bed that stood about four feet off the ground. And when Jennifer lands on top of the bed, the gun goes off with the bullet entering her lower right side, exploding through her hip bone and exiting out her back.
1: What? I, I
2: It's I, unbelievable. This is... You've never heard a story like this, have Incredible. You? Mm-hmm. Miraculously, Jennifer is able to call for help. And after surgery and her recovery in the hospital, she's able to return home. But before she goes home, there is still yet more drama in store for our fair heroine. The district attorney wanted to charge John for possession of an illegal weapon because he was, in fact, an ex-con. Oh, my God. (laughs) John has the nerve to just come on by the hospital and beg Jennifer to say the gun was hers. Because it would only be a misdemeanor for her instead of a felony for him. Jennifer says no. Thank God. I was a little worried. Okay. Jennifer and John were officially divorced in 1983, leaving Jennifer's life kind of in ruins. Her marriage to John Letterer had almost irreparably damaged her relationship with her daughter. It had destroyed her finances. It had majorly damaged her public reputation. Had almost caused her death. hmm and left her emotionally numb. Does Jennifer decide to take a break from marriage? Probably not. Hell no. It's a great time to take a break. We're going to come back with the sixth and eighth marriages. Huh? Same man, though. Okay. All right. Back on the flip.
0: Hi, I'm Chris Gathard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful anonymous.
1: All right, Alicia. It's amazing that your subject is still alive at this point in the story.
2: Well, we know that Elizabeth Taylor famously married Richard Burton not once but twice. Jennifer O'Neill is going to do the same thing. Welcome to marriage number six and marriage number eight with Richard Brown. Okay. So here's Jennifer. Life and finances and ruins. Jennifer knows she needs to get back to work and start rebuilding herself to make some money. She had landed a starring role in the new CBS show called Harper and Reynolds. Feeling that that was kind of not a good name for a TV show, Jennifer convinced the producer to
1: change the title to Cover Up. This was actually a show that we watched in my childhood home. Well, U- until it, it, until, yeah, it until it tragically ended. That's terrible.
2: Jennifer O'Neill, yeah, little black rain cloud. Just, okay. I mean,
1: that's that's how it sounds. Yeah.
2: Back in California, Jennifer's shooting the TV series Cover Up, and Jennifer and her co-star John Eric Hexum were working sixteen to eighteen hour days. Jennifer's role in cover-up was one of a recently widowed fashion photographer who learns her husband had actually been an undercover CIA agent who was murdered. She then recruits a younger former special forces operator mm-hmm. to help her find her husband's killer.
1: Yeah, I remembered it was a some, some type of spy right. adjacent thing. In the midst of all this within the plot line, her husband's former boss is
2: impressed with her tenacity and intelligence and offers her in the cover-up show, her late husband's job. So she'll still use her photography as a cover for her new undercover agent status and missions. Okay. Hey, September 1984, man. These things probably happen. The show was met with high ratings. Mm -hmm. The cast had filmed nine episodes when tragedy does in fact strike. Hexham had been messing around with one of the prop guns between
1: takes and pretended to be playing Russian roulette. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, not realizing that those blanks still pack a punch. that's right. The gun was loaded with the blank that would cause a loud sound for scenes, but would be totally
2: harmless when shot into the air. The problem was that Hexum shot it directly into his temple. Mm -hmm. The force of the explosion drove a piece of his skull deep into his brain. John Eric was taken to the hospital and kept alive on life support for about a week. But the doctors say that he was brain dead upon arrival and never actually had a chance of survival. It
1: was a terrible tragedy. He was a young guy, too.
2: 26 years old. Yeah. Passes away. CBS will recast John Eric Hexham's role on the show, finishing the first season in April 1985. But the show was not renewed for a second season. During all of this time... (laughs) (laughs) is when Jennifer snuck in a brief whirlwind romance and affair with previous Trashy Divorces alum, Lorenzo Lamas. Oh, Mm -hmm. wow. They were two actors starring in hit dramas, and both were very briefly between marriages long enough to pencil each other in. (laughs) But Lorenzo's romantic drama with his ex-wife becoming pregnant with his child was even too much for Jennifer to tolerate, so Jennifer O'Neill's like, See ya, Lorenzo. We covered him this, like, it all, spiderwebs, it all facts. Yeah, yeah. Despite the tragic loss of her co-star, cover-up success did provide Jennifer with enough money to get out of debt. On a more stable footing, now she begins to plan out the next steps of her life. And one day, so one day, one of Jennifer's friends asked Jennifer if Jen would like to go out with a friend of hers named Richard. And Jennifer agrees if all three of them would go to dinner together, but as soon as Jennifer sees Richard, she is smitten with his good looks and charm. She would later find out that they had actually met before, but she didn't remember. Richard is a limousine driver who had picked her up from LAX one time. Richard naturally remembers Jennifer O'Neill.
1: I bet. Richard was an
2: ex-marine, a Vietnam veteran, a rodeo cowboy, a songwriter, and a bad boy as personalities go. Old Dick is in excellent shape when they start dating because he was training for the Mr. Forty title. (laughs) Jennifer later recalled that she had never known anyone who looked in the mirror as often as Richard did. Hmm. Now we already know that this relationship does not end well for Jennifer but Jennifer will describe Richard in this way. He was handsome on handsome to me but he was more handsome to himself. He also ended up being the meanest man alive with a vicious temper and a vocabulary to match. Wow. Despite all of these doubts, Jennifer O'Neill marries Richard Brown in 1986, clouded by intense physical attraction and a strong passion for each other. The couple would be together for the next 10 years, but they would be some of the toughest years of Jennifer's life. On the honeymoon, Jennifer gets pregnant. Nine months later, their son Cooper was born. Jennifer says Richard was a great father to their son, but Jennifer is deeply bothered by Richard's complete lack of interest in her other child, Reese, who's now six years old. Jennifer says that Richard was never physically violent to her or the child, but his temper was uncontrollable and the verbal attacks were devastating. Jennifer says that Richard describes the onslaught of temper as being similar to standing in the middle of artillery crossfire in Vietnam. Although he could recognize his level of anger and outbursts, he never apologizes for them, nor attempts to change any of his behavior.
1: Yeah, if I had to guess, I would suggest PTSD that was not being addressed. Yeah. Well, for her part, Jennifer's codependence
2: and insecurity causes her to feed into the dysfunction by continuously going back for more of the same like she does with previous husbands. And Jennifer will write, it was the old pattern. The more I couldn't reach them or hold their affection, the more I wanted them and the more extreme my behavior became to get their attention. To add more heartbreak to the situation, Jennifer continued having more miscarriages during Mm. this marriage. The marriage will fall apart and the couple divorces in 1989, but wait, there's more because the couple divorced, but they kept getting back together off and on, on and off. They can't seem to break this cycle with each other. So in 1993, the couple will marry again, leaving Richard Brown to become Jennifer O'Neill's sixth and eighth husband. Is that a typo? No, (laughs) Jennifer O'Neill sneaks in a seventh husband. I was going to say. Into the mix, really briefly. We're going to talk about that one in a second. Was her marriage to Richard Brown better the second time around? No. Absolutely not. In addition to all the same issues that came in marriage number one, Jennifer also discovers during marriage number two that old Dick had been frequenting sex workers basically over the entire course of both marriages. What was getting better, though, was Jennifer. She'll write that she was maturing. She found her Christian faith during this time, which she says grounded her. She attributes newfound faith to not losing herself or her relationship with her son Hmm. when this marriage ended. Oh, Richard. Richard and Jennifer will divorce for the second and final time in 1996. So they had like a decade... Yeah. Okay. Now, a really unhealthy decade. I mean... Between her marriages to Dick Brown, Jennifer continues feeling transformed by her new religious faith, which helped her not to spiral back into despair, but it also contributed to her feeling that she should be married. Writing, I can honestly say that during the times when I wasn't married, not a moment passed when deep down inside I wasn't searching for my guy for life. It didn't matter how outrageous the past failures had been. I seemed to always refinish my heart with a new veneer of hope and hurl myself into the next commitment with the spunk of an unblemished teenager. I'm not sure whether I was a positive thinker or just plain stupid. Enter Neil Bonin. <laughs> Neil was handsome. He's a kind man from a nice family Neil's an actor who she met back in New York in 1992 while there to redecorate an apartment that she had recently purchased. Jennifer wasted no time before diving headfirst into this new relationship. Neil was also a Christian, so together they agreed that they would abstain from sex before they get married. But they wouldn't have to abstain for too long, don't <laughs> worry, because just a few months after they meet, the couple
1: will marry. Well. Wow. Just sprinting down that aisle.
2: Yep. Jennifer writes, I was totally convinced that with God's manual in front of our faces every day, our commitment would be solid and lifelong. Sure. Neil was absolutely fantastic with Cooper and Cooper adored him, which of course was important to me. This was a good man. It was a happy time. And Neil and I decided we would try to have a baby together. I felt renewed. So you may imagine that Jennifer was left more than shattered when she found out that Neil had not told her something of central importance before they got married. Jennifer has never discussed the details of the issue Hmm. because she promised Neil that it would remain private. But whatever it was, it was enough for Jennifer to end the marriage.
1: Wow. So just a little mystery issue that... uh... Led to divorce. Yeah,
2: we don't know what it is. Hmm.
1: Unclear.
2: Jennifer felt that if Neil had deceived her that early in their relationship, sure, that she would never be able to fully trust him. The marriage was annulled after only six months. Understandably, Jennifer says the worst part was how much the breakup devastated her son. Mm-hmm. Jennifer's disappointment and disillusionment after this marriage does set the perfect. Set up for old Richard Brown to come back into her life. May also be interesting to know that Richard Brown also married his first wife twice as well. Wow. Mm -hmm. By marrying Richard again, Jennifer hoped that she could make it right under God's umbrella. Wish I knew how to quit you. Golly. The couple remarried in 1993. We now know how that ended. They divorced in 1996 after tumultuous and draining years. Okay, let's get to a little happy now. Okay. It may not be surprising that Jennifer O'Neill wasted no time in marrying again. In fact, in 1996, the same year that she divorced Richard Brown, Jennifer will marry for the ninth time and so far final. Okay. This time, the groom-to-be is Mervyn Locke Jr. And Jennifer credits their shared religious faith, with their marital success, because as of today, the couple is still married. Now, once a horse girl, always a horse girl. Sure. The couple have an equine-assisted therapy ministry for former military members and their families. Animals have always been therapeutic to Jennifer, and now she is able to share her love of animals with others. In 1999, Jennifer wrote her autobiography, appropriately named... Surviving Myself. Yeah. Real good name there. Having been married more times than Elizabeth Taylor, Jennifer O'Neill sends Elizabeth Taylor a copy of her book. Elizabeth Taylor will call her later to thank Jennifer and told Jennifer, Elizabeth Taylor did. They had a lot in common because neither of them dated men. They (laughs) married everyone instead, and they are both hard to kill. (laughs) I love Elizabeth Taylor. If anyone deserves some happiness and peace after the variety of struggles in her life, it is Jennifer O'Neill. That, my dear, is the Trashy Divorces Hall of Fame saga of Jennifer O'Neill.
1: Why couldn't they just bring the dog to Manhattan? I don't get it. It also sounds like she probably just needed to get a dog on a number of those (laughs) occasions when she instead got married. That's a ride. I don't know
2: how many trash cans. Uh, season fifteen, end of the season, fifteen at least. I can't.
1: I mean, I'm not gonna go at her too hard. Like that's just a life of. Ah, you're right. There was some sort of little storm cloud following her around for many, many years. Mm -hmm. We hear trashy divorces
2: are thrilled that she has found some marital bliss over the last number of decades. Good on you, Jennifer. But. Those first eight, man. Whoosh.
1: What a ride. Yep. Wow. All right. Did not see most of that coming. I knew she'd had a lot because it's all star season, but oh my gosh. We
2: hear Trashy Divorce's deliver for you all the trash candy.
1: A gunshot wound. Like, a oh horse my gosh. a
2: car accident. Like, mm. indestructible.
1: Yeah. This one. Yeah. All right. Season
2: fifteen, let's shut it down. Thanks everybody so so much for tuning into this episode and joining us on our ride of trashy goodness. We're gonna be back Wednesday, October 5th. Yep, kicking off Sweet Sixteen. So excited about that. In the meantime, Stacey, tell people how to get more trashy divorces if they miss us in the next two weeks.
1: Come join us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces where we have the greatest community in the world. And like 1100
2: episodes over there. Yeah. More trash than you can ever imagine. We just started our Trashy Stewart series. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. can also get some free episodes. We'll work on getting those
1: refreshed out as well. Sure. Bit.ly slash Trash Candy. Just put that into your browser. And if you really like good storytelling, now's a
2: great time to catch up on my other little side podcast, Done and Done. D O N E and D U N N E. Mm-hmm. We are finishing up our Marilyn Monroe arc before we get into some shady ladies. <laughs> pretty exciting, pretty exciting. Always something going on around Trashy Divorces Headquarters. And we are thrilled that you are joining us for the ride. Absolutely. Big love to everybody. Have a tremendous week until we see you for season 16. Until we do, keep those hands clean keep your hearts trashy big love everybody see ya october 5th for sweet 16 bye bye and thanks to you for listening trashy divorces is a hemlock creatives production created and produced right here in atlanta georgia by us stacy and alicia
1: You can contact us at
2: TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com.
1: If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch Shop and
2: Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly.com